So uh, let's pray this morning. I, I want to invite you to, to turn uh, in the scriptures to John chapter 16. You may be saying to yourself, Chad, we're in John chapter 16. What are we doing? We're in John chapter 16 again. Yes, we are for a moment, but then we're going to be coming out of John chapter 16 and actually going to be in John chapter 17 uh, this morning. So let's pray together um, as we uh, dive into God's word and as we explore the riches of his truth um, the reality of who he is and how he has shown himself to be through his revealed word. So, Father God, I just thank you uh, for your word this morning. I thank you, God, that it is unmatched. It is unlike anything else that we can come to. Um, unlike every other book that we read, this is the only one that reads us. It is the only one that pierces our hearts. It is the only one that can affect change in the life of the believer. God, your word is sufficient and powerful. It is all we need, God. And I pray this morning, Lord, that as we, as we venture in, Lord, as we set sail on the sea of studying, God, who you are and knowing you uh, through what you have shared about yourself to us, God, that it would just penetrate to our very core. God, that it would split, Lord God, it would pierce uh, to the very inward parts of us. And God, that we would be transformed by it this morning. Father, I pray that we would be drawn into a greater understanding of who you are. God, that your glory would be seen as we see who you are. God, that your glory would be seen, God, and that uh, our worship, God, would be affected, Lord, that we would not have a, a low view of you, but that we would have a high and lifted up view of who you are this morning. And God, that our height, that, that, our, that our praises would be brought to, to great heights as we consider all that you are and who you are and what you've done in our lives. Father, we love you and we honor you this morning and we thank you for this word. In Jesus' name, amen. I admittedly can't understand anything about what God says unless I ask God to reveal understanding to me as we go through this morning what we're going to do. And I hope that's your prayer this morning, that God, you, outside of my own abilities, my own capacities, I, I cannot in any way be able to fathom, to understand, to take hold of, to consider the implications and the power and the, the idea of who you are unless... God, you reveal it unless you show it by your grace. Um, I can sit up here and we can sit up here and read words and sentences and paragraphs that, 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 that give us ideas and concepts and, you know, and all those things, right? But, but, but ultimately, there, there's nothing that we can rely on within ourselves to bring understanding. But our prayer is that God would show us. God, you would reveal to us. God, through your spirit, you would give us revelation and give us sense for what we read. And so I pray that that is both your reality this morning and mine uh, as we get to do this every single week together. We actually get to hear what God has to say every single Sunday. It's amazing. When you open this thing and you read it, you get to hear what God says. And you, have, you don't have to 
you don't have to think about whether it's true or not. You don't have to think about whether or not this is really real or if this is the reality of the way things are. God has given us his word and we can rely on it and we don't have to second guess anything about what we read or what we know about God when we come to his truth and we are beholden to what he has revealed to us. So I hope that that is how you approach this this morning. So over the past several weeks, we've laid the groundwork for an understanding of the purpose of the work of the Holy Spirit. We've been looking at the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, his mind, his will, and his affections. And then over the last several weeks, we've been looking at the purpose of the Holy Spirit. And we're studying why is it that the Holy Spirit does what he does? And so we've kind of laid that groundwork over the last couple of weeks. We've really appealed to the word of God, first and foremost, above everything else, because the word of God, God flawlessly reveals God. Like I said, we don't have to second guess or think about um, or analyze whether or not what we're reading is true. But we know it is because it comes from God himself. So he reveals his own thoughts in his word. He reveals his judgments recording himself. He reveals his will. He reveals his purpose. And when we come to the word of God, we understand what the purpose of the Holy Spirit is. Over the last two weeks, we've consulted the words of Christ. We've gone right to the mouth of Christ and we've asked, what is it? And why is it that the Holy Spirit does what he does? What is the, the purpose? We, we went to Christ and his words. Why? Because they're authoritative. In other words, they're final. No other words need to be mentioned or spoken about regarding the topic of the Holy Spirit outside of the words of Christ. We do not need to make up our own uh, thoughts about it, our own opinions. We don't need to construct our own teachings, or our own theology about who the Holy Spirit is and what he does and why he does it. But we go directly to the word of Christ, which is final. It's sufficient, which means it's all we need. It's unchanging. It's fixed. It's secure. It's firm. We can rely on it. We can take it to the bank. We can live our lives upon it. So that's where we've been over the last two weeks. And so leaping off the pages of Scripture and hopefully being planted into the minds and the hearts of you, this morning is that truth about the purpose of the Holy Spirit. And I hope that with that, that it bears much fruit in your life going forward. So this is where we landed last week. We landed in Matthew chapter 16. And this is what we surmise from Jesus' words. Matthew chapter 16, 14 says this. Above everything, the Holy Spirit will glorify me. That's what we read. Above everything. In other words, the Holy Spirit's chief priority is to glorify Christ. What does that mean? We talked about that last week. This word in the Greek, glorify, doxazo, means to esteem, to honor, to praise, to magnify. To act in such a way that recognizes the uniqueness of God. To draw attention to his distinct, unmatched character. Knowledge, power, holiness. This is what Jesus says is the priority, the purpose of everything the Holy Spirit does. And so it's worth noting as we go forward and we, we get to dive into what the Holy Spirit does, that we would see everything through this filter. That everything that the Holy Spirit does is unto this goal right here, to glorify and to raise up 
Christ. I want us to read something here in Philippians. You don't have to go there, but I'll go there for you. Philippians chapter 3, 1 through 3. This is what Paul says to the church in Philippi. He says, As finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. It's no trouble to me and safe for you. He wants you, us to rejoice in the Lord, to have surpassing joy in Christ. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. In other words, what he's saying is, look out for those who don't preach the gospel. Look out for those that just teach you that you need to keep working and working and working and working, and it's by your own means that you achieve your salvation. He says, look out for them. He says, for we are the circumcision. The body of Christ is the circumcision. We have been circumcised, in other words, in our hearts. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. Watch this. How are you to worship God? Only one way. By the Spirit of God. When you come in this morning, the ability for you to come in this morning, corporately worship, raise your hands and extol all the beauty and the benefits and the wonders of God and everything that Christ has done is only by one power, the only by one source. It is by the Holy Spirit alone. You cannot worship God through any other means. You can't worship God through your flesh. You can't worship God through your works. You can't worship God any other way. You worship God through, as Paul says, by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in you. He says, we worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So the point of our worship is what? To glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, to exalt him, to bring glory and honor to Christ. That is the whole purpose. We do it by the Spirit, but unto Christ. That's what he's saying. So the glorifying of Christ is the chief end of the Spirit's work. The Spirit's highest priority is the elevating of Christ, drawing all attention to himself, drawing all attention to his accomplishments. Why? So that, as John says in John chapter 20, so that men would believe. So that men would believe. What is the outcome of the Spirit's purpose in his work? So that men would believe and have life. So that you would believe, and not only believe, have spiritual life in God. That is his ultimate goal. So another way to say this, guys, this morning, another way to say this, another way to say that, 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 that the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ, another way to understand this is to say that God above everything else demonstrates a relentless pursuit of his own glory. God above everything else desires and goes for and demonstrates a pursuit of his own glory. That is ultimately what God is after. It is for his glory to be seen. It is for his glory to be shown. It is for his glory to be reflected. It is for him to be esteemed and to be honored and to be magnified and to show that he is completely unique and distinct from anything else that we know and understand in this life. So that is really the purpose of the Holy Spirit. That is the purpose of God. To bring glory to himself, to relentlessly pursue it. God's glory stands at the center of his character. Think about this for a moment. God's glory, when you think about the character of God, when you think about who he is intrinsically, it is God's glory that stands at the very center of his, of his character. Well, it's like, it's like his supremeness is in the substance of his character. 
in the substance of his, of his nature. That is what makes him holy and set apart. God is supremely glorious. And all he seeks to do is to bring attention to his holiness. He seeks to bring attention to his abilities, to his strength, to his grace, to his goodness in your life. God has such a zeal, and I want you to see this today. God has such a zeal for the gloriousness of himself to be observed. That really, Scripture presents this as the primary motivating force for all that he does. In other words, God is extremely self-centered. And he's the only one that reserves that right. Can you imagine someone else speaking in these terms about themselves? Right? God alone is the one who deserves to be centered upon. And so he centers himself upon himself. So these are the two purposes for the next two weeks that I want us to really understand about the purposes of God and the purposes of the Holy Spirit. First is this. I want us to be caught up in the passionate zeal God has for his glory. I want us to see that in the scriptures, how passionate God is for his glory. And to be swept up, immersed in God's delight in the glory of his name. I hope that you see that over the next two weeks. I hope that when we go to the scriptures that you see that, that you see this portrait God is painting and how everything is surrounded and centered on him and his glory this morning. Secondly, I want us to be compelled by God's zeal for his glory in such a way that it would stir the affections of your heart and mine to display his glory in your own life. I want, you to, I want you to be wrapped up in this if you can. I want you to be compelled to live life and to reflect God's glory because ultimately that is the purpose of God. To be passionate for his own glory. So those are the two things. That we would be overwhelmed by supernatural joy that can only proceed from being completely satisfied in Christ. That not only God would consider his glory to be of infinite value, but that, that, that it would be precious and that it would be worthy to be worshipped, but that we would reciprocate that sentiment with our own heart. That we would leave here and, and somehow, in some way, understand to some degree in our limited understanding how, how passionate God is seeking his own glory. And that he is narrowly focused on no other thing. And that we, in turn, we would be affected by this. And that our hearts would turn and say, God, if you are that passionate about your glory, if your zeal is that great for your own name, help me do the same in my own life. 
before we get to verse seven, or chapter 17, I want to say this, that God's affectionate enthusiasm for his glory is not the result of some misappropriated ego trip on the part of God. It's not some desperate attempt to improve his self-esteem. God has no confidence issues. Right? He has no identity crisis. And, and, and he's not on some ego trip just to get everyone to focus on him because he has, in some way, some shortcoming that he's trying to overcome. Right? That's not the point of the purpose of God and the zeal for his glory. God is unwaveringly committed to his glory and his name and his work because he's the most glorious reality we will ever know. God is the most glorious reality that we can ever conceive of. And even in our limited ability to conceive of God, it is far above what even we can understand. Even though God has shown us the, the totality of who he is through his word, us, as we come to the word of God and come to the scriptures, we, we in, in some way, are able to grasp that. But as Paul says, the depths and the riches of the glory of God, man, I'm still so far away from understanding that in its fullness. But God, he is the most illustrious, distinguished, spectacular being in the universe. God, as creator, stands above everything. And his life, his, his, he is the one life form that shares no equality. He is unmatched. He has no rival. He, he, no one stands beside him, as we sang this morning. No one stands beside God. He is wholly other than anything that we can think of or anything that exists. God alone reserves the right, like I said, to be centered on himself because he's the most glorious thing we can ever put our attention to. So it is the God-centeredness of God that must compel us to make Christ the centrality of our lives. And this fits right in with John 16. As Jesus says, as the Holy Spirit's aim and goal is to give me glory, the next question becomes is, is that mine? Because it's God's, it should be mine. So God being consumed by a zest for his glory is not new. It's not some new concept that Jesus came up with in John chapter 16. It can be found all over the scriptures. Before the very foundation of the world was created, he breathed out his word and established all creation with the breath of his mouth. And God considered the glory of his name to be the highest priority. I want us to see that for a moment in Psalm 97, verses 1 to 6. This is what the psalmist writes. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice let the many coastlines be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. 
Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. In other words, when we look out into creation, when we look out into the heavens, when we look into the stars and we see the vastness and the grandness and the form of everything that is around us, it is for one purpose. God has done that for one purpose and that is to display his glory. Psalm 108, 5 and 6 says this, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. How is it that God's glory is seen over all the earth? It is by the delivering of his people. It is through the salvation of his people. That's how God shows his immense glory. That is how God shows how distinct he is from everything else. It is by that standard. Last one, Psalm 62, verse 7, says this. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. That is the glory of the living God that he has shown in his word and in our lives. So John 17. John 17 really comes on the heels of Jesus' final words. As you guys know, we were in John 16 last week, but John 17 comes on the heels. And what we're seeing here is that Jesus is transferring or uh, he's kind of changing gears here. Uh, He was extolling and encouraging his disciples. And now in John chapter 17, we see Jesus' attention shift from his disciples and over to God the Father as he prays. And the first thing he prays for is his own glory. And then he moves into another form of prayer where he prays for his disciples. And actually, this is such a beautiful prayer because he includes us in it. You'll see that in a moment. You are included in this prayer in John 17. If that doesn't encourage you this morning, Jesus actually, uh, we are able to actually see Jesus' words and consider what Jesus is praying for for me and for you this morning. We have God's words documented for us so that we know how God prays for us. We know how Jesus prays for us right now in this moment. And we'll see that in John chapter 17. But this comes really on the heels of 16. And and here's the deal, guys. Jesus, in the very next chapter, is going to be betrayed. So the cross is looming heavy right now in this situation. It's heavy on his mind and its weight bears, or the shadows of the cross bears its weight on the conscience of Jesus as he says this, as he prays this prayer. His final word of preparation for life without him to the disciples in, in, in the last part of 16 is this, in this world you will have trouble. 16 verses 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Those are his final words to his assembled disciples before he prays to God. All will have to live life 
in this world. Me, you, everyone. We all have to live life. If we're going to live, our only option is to live in this world. God has created. And in this world, we have been given the opportunity to live our life. And so everyone lives their life in this world, but not everyone will live with Christ. He says, you will live in this world, and in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So everyone lives in this world, but not everyone lives without Christ. We live with him. And so the work of the cross is not an admission of defeat this morning. Jesus is not saying, I'm going to the cross because I'm being defeated. The, the message of the cross and the work of the cross is not a relinquishing to fear this morning or a resignation of gloom this morning, but it's a confident declaration of a supreme work of conquering. Christ has, through the cross, conquered death for you, has extinguished sin for you, has obliterated Satan's plans for you. Because now you live in him by the work of that cross. So this marks the end of his discourse. And then we journey into chapter 17. I'm going to read the whole chapter. And then we're just going to parse out some things that I think are important to see this morning. Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Take note of how many times the word glory or glorify is mentioned in this one chapter. I'll give you a hint. It's more than five. Verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and that they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. 
Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. In other words, Jesus consecrates himself, sets him apart. And, and the ultimate expression of that is for him going to the cross. That they also may be sanctified in the truth. Now, this is all for his disciples that are with him at that point, at that time. But then he transitions. Watch this. I do not ask for these only, meaning just his disciples, just those who were following him at that point in time. But watch this also for those who will believe in me through their word. You have believed. How have you believed? Through the writings of the apostles, through the teachings of God through men. That's how you have believed. You have heard the word. You have heard the call. And you have responded. And you have believed. In other words, you have believed. Look at what Jesus says back in verse 17 and earlier. He says that they would believe that you sent me. That they would know that you are the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's how you believe. And so he says, this is prayers not just for you guys, but you got to understand something. As you go and preach the gospel, as you go and declare the message of the kingdom, as you go and preach salvation to the world who is desperate for someone, even them, this is for them. So this is for you. This prayer is for you this morning. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one. Even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. <sighs> Nothing speaks like that. No one speaks like that. Now I'm going to desperately try <clears throat> and explain a little bit more. Knowing that I will fall short because I cannot rise to the level of what we just read. But I want us to see this for a moment. I want us to focus on verses 1 through 5 for a moment. John 17 really is about this, guys. God's pursuit of his own glory. That's what it's about. God's pursuit of his own glory. The word glory there is used how many times? Anybody count? Eight times. Eight times that word was used just in that account alone. That says something. A little kind of tool for us when we're reading scripture and we're studying. If something is repeated over and over again, pay attention because it's important. 
So this is important. We have to grasp this in some way. That, that God is pursuing his own glory in all things. And it falls right in line with John chapter 16 with what Jesus said the Holy Spirit is doing. So let me just try to break this down here. It is the son's desire to esteem the father, to honor the father and his faithfulness because Christ comes and completes or carries out the plan of the father. So when Jesus says, I, uh, father, the hour has come, glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh. What is Jesus saying here? What he's saying here is, is that I have come to glorify you, that everything I do, everything that I've done, all of the works that I have accomplished, even the one that I haven't accomplished yet, which is going to the cross, it all is for one purpose. It is to glorify you. And not only that, God, glorify me as you send me to where you have destined me to go for humanity. So God, I'm, I want to glorify you in all that I do. And not only that, God, I know that you're going to glorify me as I'm obedient to what you have called me to do. So the Father's divine plan of salvation in Christ is going to the cross. And it is how Christ glorifies the Father. And the Father's desire is to show Christ as unique and unmatched. Not any person, not any man could go to that cross and accomplish what Christ did. Only one man, the God-man, that could go to the cross and accomplish everything on our behalf. He rescues us. He delivers us. He changes us. He transforms us. Everything that Christ accomplishes can only be done by him. So Christ is glorified by the Father by being sent to the cross as the only one, the unique one that could do it. And Christ glorifies the Father through going through in obedience and coming under uh, the, the authority of the Father, even though he shares his authority with the Father, to go and be submissive to what God is asking him to do. That is one way. In verse 2, God glorifies himself in confirming the authority of Christ over every man. Look at this. Since you have given him authority, Jesus talking about himself over all flesh to give eternal life. How is it that we have eternal life? It is through one man. It is through one authority. It is Christ alone that gives eternal and grants eternal life for me and for you. It is Christ alone that comes and forgives. It is Christ alone that saves. It is Christ alone that reconciles. It is Christ who we are drawn to. It is Christ in who we are kept. It is in Christ in whom we are redeemed. Christ alone has the authority to achieve all of these things on our behalf by faith. Verse 3 says this, and this is eternal life. What is eternal life? How is it that you've been granted eternal life? How can you taste of this life to come? How is it that you can be given the benefit of faith? This is how you can know eternal life. This is how you can receive eternal life. That is to know that God is the only true God. And that Christ was truly sent by him. That he was not just some great teacher, philosopher, some spiritual man that had profound insights, but that he came from God. Verse 4. Here we go again. <laughs> I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
Christ glorifies the Father by revealing the mind and the thoughts of God. Christ glorifies the Father in the miracles that he worked because it shows the mercy of God. God has displayed the character and his uniqueness through the miracles that were performed by Christ. God has shown how merciful he is through the miracles of Christ. When Christ comes and heals from disease, when he restores sight to the blind, when he raises people from the dead, what is it supposed to turn us to? It is supposed to, in every way, turn our hearts and minds and our affections to the mercy of God. That is the point. It is display the character of God. So when Christ comes and he glorifies the Father in all that he does, it is in his miracles, it is in his teachings, it is in the wisdom, it is in the truth that he gives, for it shows God and his uniqueness to us. And finally, verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Think about this for a moment. Christ pre-existent before the foundation of the world, before anything was spoken into creation, Christ was being glorified by the Father. Christ was glorifying the Father. So we see there is a pre-existence to God, to Christ. Christ was not created. Christ did not enter the picture at some point in time. But he was in every way infinitely existing with the Father in glory. But here's the most wonderful thing about verse 5, guys. Is that the zeal of God's glory is most profoundly understood at the cross. Look what he says. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What had Christ not done yet? He had performed every miracle. He had taught what he was supposed to teach. He had laid out the plan of salvation. He had shown everybody who he was. He had declared where he came from. He had shown or he had declared he was equal with the Father. He had done all of these things, but what had he not done yet? He had not gone to the cross. He had not been raised yet. And so Christ looks at this future of where he was going and saying, God, there's still more of me to glorify. God, that you're not done in your work of glorifying me, but that is going to come when I go to the cross. And it is where in the cross, Christ looks to the most unsuspecting place to experience the crescendo of God's glory. The cross is the most unsuspecting place where we would see the glory of God demonstrated. But it is the very place where God says, this is my crowning moment of glorifying my son. This is it. It's the most inconceivable place. Why? Because it's connected with humility, or humiliation, shame, rejection. But God chose to unbridle his glory in Christ through the embarrassment of the cross. Think about that. All of Christ's glory, unbridled, leashed out, unleashed for the world to see, was right there. Was right there. 
This glory was mute to onlookers. Those who were there didn't understand it. Even his own disciples probably suppressed it with confusion, trying to figure out what's going on. But to Christ, the spectacle of the cross demonstrated his glory. And it's a glory that he had with the Father before he came. So the high, the capstone of God's glory shown to men is in your salvation. When you think about what God went through to save you, to redeem you, to draw you to himself, to adopt you into his family, to show his unending love and mercy for you. When you think about the uniqueness of the glory of God, and when you think about how God is the only one that can accomplish this on your behalf, when you think about that glory, when you think about it, think of as the high watermark, the capstone of all things, the way in which God supremely displays that is in your salvation. God wants glory by saving you. God shows his glory by calling you to himself. God shows his glory and he shows it in a way that is identical to the glory that Christ had even before he came to the earth. So, the overwhelming testimony of scripture is that God is preoccupied with his own glory. And I hope that you can see that in these texts. Is there anyone more justified in demonstrating his zeal for his own glory? No. Is there anyone who is more deserving of self-centeredness? No. So if Christ's attention is set upon the honoring and esteeming of his own name, what does that say about me and you? What does that say about our responsibility with our own lives? When God's priority is the glorifying of himself, it will produce in us surpassing joy. In other words, God has created you and the joy that you have, the joy that you receive, the joy that you experience in God is most supremely understood when you are glorifying him. That's the point. So in everything that you do, if, if God and Christ is the center and the glorifying of Christ is your aim and your goal, what is produced in that? It is surpassing joy. It is uh, uh, unbridled gladness in God because you have seen and tasted and understood the uniqueness of God in what he has done for you. And that should compel you to live with a, an unsurpassing joy, an unbridled affection, enthusiasm for who God is and who he is in your own life. God's glory when beholded, it compels us to love him and to see the goodness of God 
in the glory of Christ. And that is his one aim. And it is self-centered, but it's for your benefit and for mine. Because when Christ is glorified, I can be a better husband. When my aim is to glorify Christ, I hopefully can serve my wife better. I hopefully can bear the fruit of patience. I hopefully can bear the fruit of modeling God's grace and God's kindness. When glorifying Christ becomes my one aim, I hope that will help me be a better father, that I can model God's grace for them, that I can demonstrate his love for me in them. Hopefully, if Christ and glorifying him becomes my one aim, that his authority over me helps me better lead my family. Hopefully, as I aim at glorifying Christ like the Spirit does and like God does, that it would make me more humble, that it would cause me to want to serve with greater passion, that when he is glorified, I'm a better friend, I'm a better confidant, maybe a better pastor. If the glory of Christ is our upward call, it is my greatest endeavor, my unswerving commitment. Surely God will show himself and transform us into his image. Will he not, church? Will he not? And so that is my encouragement for you this morning. Above everything, above all things, make the glorifying of Christ your only aim and see what God will do. See what he will do. He will surely not let you down. He will surely meet you in that place. He will surely resurrect your heart. He will surely penetrate and change your affections. He will surely show himself and glorify himself in you. Amen? Let's pray.